2: Well, thanks a lot for tuning in tonight. Toronto leading the Islanders 4-3 early in the third. Blues up 1-0 on the Flyers. Devils up 1-0 on the Sabres. Those games also in the third period. Your scoreboard for Crystal Glass. For all your glass needs, call 310-GLASS today. The Oilers, a 1-0 shootout win over the Canadians yesterday. Todd McClellan happy to get the win before the bye week.
3: Well, anytime you can... Uh, put an end to a uh, losing streak you're happy whether it's going into a break or not but um, I thought when we came out of the all-star break we weren't very good and we improved in, in each of the four games uh, the problem is we're going into another so-called break and uh, we've got to start all over again next week so um, get the rest and, and maybe learn a lesson from uh, from the all-star break and, and apply it to uh, returning next week is there any way to guard against that or uh, you know I, we all talk about learning lessons and preparing and all that type of stuff it's it's hard to get the engine going again and um you know we'll try and do a better job of it when we play chicago i believe it is
2: and that's saturday 6:30 face-off show here on 6:30. 30 eight o'clock for the drop of the puck you know there was a pretty big game in fort mcmurray on friday the White Court Wolverines beat the Fort McMurray Oil Barons 2-1 in overtime. As a result, our next guest, Gord Thibodeau, became the all-time winningest coach in the history of the Alberta Junior Hockey League. Pleased to welcome Gord to the show. Gord, you're on with Reed. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Reed. How are you? I am doing great. First of all, congratulations. Uh, how does it feel? There's the simple question off the top.
3: Exhausting, <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It's been a, a very tough uh, week, obviously with the travel to Fort Mac, and uh, it's been very emotional um, setting the record Friday night. Uh, uh, you know, it was it was surreal, uh, but it's been a long few days just returning a lot of emails and calls, texts, and um, it just it's humbling to. Uh, understand that uh, you know, you've know you been around this long and it's humbling to know that uh, this many wins in um, you've had some great players and uh, I guess that's the, the core belief is that uh, it shows that I've had a lot of good teams and a lot of good hockey players play for
2: me. Yeah, well yeah, you have and, and you've helped them out a lot to yourself and it's funny I, when I was talking to people about having you on the show I said, you know, Gord's one of the first people I interviewed as an actual Professional broadcaster. I mean, I'd volunteered when I'd gone to school and stuff. But in March of 2000, uh, I joined the TV station in Lloydminster, and and you were just starting your second round series against Fort Saskatchewan, and you eventually lost to Fort McMurray in the North Final, and uh, and they won the uh, and they won the national championship. And I know you won't remember this, but I had to go out and do an interview with you after practice, and I was I didn't have a camera person, so I was operating everything myself, and. I couldn't set up the tripod properly and the camera like kept looking like it was going to fall off. And then I remember you just said to me, having a little bit of trouble there, Reed.
3: <laughs> you know what? That's uh that's a great memory to think back. I certainly remember you and Lloyd. You know what? Uh, those were great days. It was a great year that year that you happened to be there. As you mentioned, losing to Fort McMurray in a very memorable series before they went on to win the RBC. And, uh, you know, that's the one that still stings a little bit, uh, especially the four-overtime game we lost at home. But uh, great memories, and that's what uh, the game's all about.
2: Your goalie was Dustin Schwartz, who's uh, now the goalie coach for the Edmonton Oilers. I remember that four-overtime game. At the time, it was the longest game in the history of the league. I want to ask you something about that, Gord, because, you know, as I, as I got to know people around the AJHL over the next couple of years, there were a couple people who said to me, that the Lloydminster Blazers had the second best team in Canada. They just happened to be in the same division as the best team, and that was Fort McMurray. Do you, do you think that team was that good?
3: You know what, I when I look back and I've had a lot of time to you know to think about it and I've had a lot of conversation with with friend Gal, who of course was the winning coach DM for Fort McMurray. And, uh, you know, Fran mentioned that, that he thought that we were their toughest test. Um, it's always hard to say, but I, I was very, very proud of that hockey team, and I still think it, it may have been the best team that I've ever coached, uh, even though it didn't win. Um, it lost to a great, very deep hockey team, and Fort Mac was fully deserving, but uh, a lot of fond memories looking back. Um, like I said, when I, when I looked at that, I, I think it's definitely one of the strongest teams I've coached for sure.
2: Gordon Thibodeau joining us inside sports on 630 Chet uh so when you got into coaching what what first got you behind the bench and when you were a younger guy did you did you have any ambition to do that
3: not so much when I was you know growing up and playing no I'd never really thought about it um it's once I got to the U of A once I started playing at the University of Alberta uh, Billy Moores and Claire Drake were very big influences and their motto at the time was they wanted us to give back to the game, and we were done. They felt that that was a very important component of hockey, Is that the players who've had success and gotten some from from the game would give it back, whether it be in minor hockey or whatever level. So I remember that leaving the U of A. Um, that's probably what got me involved. Uh, but I'll be honest, I, I thought, you know, I'll do it for three or four years, give a little something back uh, because the game had been so tremendous to me. Um, I never suspected 23 years later, you know, that we'd be sitting here discussing it.
2: Yeah. You, okay, here's a tough one. Do you remember your first win in the AJ?
3: I don't. No? You know, <laughs> isn't that funny? We were we were discussing that on the weekend and I really do not remember it. I know it happened in Fort Saskatchewan. I think it happened maybe the third or fourth game of the year. First year I started coaching, but I really don't remember much about it. Um, you know, it was all a blur. At that time, you were a young guy and you don't really put a lot of emphasis in wins and losses as you're just starting out here. You know, you're think, thinking so much and you're trying to get your group to do things. And um, like I said, it, uh, it's still a blur. I don't remember it. Um, I'm thankful it happened, obviously, because one led to two and so on. But uh, I, I wish I had a better memory of it.
2: You know, it's, it's funny. I, I was contacted about possibly doing this interview last week when you had tied the record but hadn't said it. And, I mean, you and I have been doing this uh, off and on, th- these interviews, well, since 2000, right? And I yeah. thought to myself, there's no way I'm having Gordon before he breaks the record. Because if, <laughs> if,
3: if they lose both at Fort Mac... <laughs> I well, you know what? It's, it's funny you mention that, Reid. I was saying to a couple of... After it was done, the relief, you know, I kind of had visions. I said to Tom Keck, I had visions we were going to go 0-12 in the last you know 12 games and i wouldn't get it this year um you're always worried about that next game and you know you know me well enough to know that you probably smart thing not calling me when it was tied uh but like i said when the emotions uh, i think even for the team it's been such an incredible run the last 10 or 11 games and and they were relieved i think that it was done too so uh it's a nice thing to have but you know we're in a battle for first place and i don't want to take the emphasis away from our group we uh we want to get back to playing hockey and emphasis should be on a team having a great season.
2: Well, I and that, that leads into what I wanted to ask you because how did the players uh, handle it? And I've known enough coaches where they don't want to also make it about them, but you've been in the AJHL to know that it doesn't get the headlines it deserves, so sometimes you have to put yourself out there even if if you don't want to. How, how did the how did the players handle sort of uh, everything going on uh, going going on around your record?
3: you know what exceptionally well they were um very driven uh you know we we kind of got to within uh you know i think it was basically four wins of the record and then we were going on an you know an eight game road trip and i'm you know thinking privately to myself jeez they're not going to make it easy here uh but somehow our team just kind of pulled together they seemed very determined they were quiet about it but you could tell it, you know was something that they were aware of and Um, we saw that outpouring of emotion after the game was done Friday night and you know Saturday we showed up for the second game of the doubleheader and uh, I mentioned to my coach uh, Mike Mueller I said Mike I don't know emotionally if we have much left Uh, it's been you know a heck of a run and I know the boys were extremely happy and uh, I was definitely, uh, you know, very proud of them, and like I said, we uh, we expended a lot of emotion over the course of the last uh, month trying to get to that position. So I'm definitely thankful that they gave me the opportunity to break it, and to break it in Fort McMurray of all places. Um, you know, just a special feeling.
2: Gord, I want to ask you a couple other things here, and. and- and, and you know, I, I, I mean, I went out. I saw you at the RBC last year. It was really important to me to just to go to a game in, in Lloydminster, and I watched your final on TV. And but as I get swept up in, in Oilers and Eskimo stuff, I mean, sometimes I wish I I could give the league a little more attention than than I do. But what is it like in in Whitecourt? I was a little surprised when that community. Uh, who was it that moved? Was it Spruce or was it? Uh, it was Saint uh, Albert. Saint Albert. Time. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. So what, what is it like in, in White Court? Is that sustainable there? Why is it working so far?
3: Well, I mean, it's, it's been sustainable because we have a, an unbelievable owner. Brent Stark is, has been uh, amazing. Um, you know, he's one of those guys you meet in your life, and uh, I'm so thankful that my, my path is crossed with him. Uh, he's a guy who really cares about hockey, and um, we've got some work to do. There's no question. It's a small town, and, you know, with the economy not being the greatest here in the last couple of years, just like every other community. It's been tougher and tougher to, to find that support, So, uh, but Brent's uh, a guy who really cares about this community. He made his, his money up here, his family is very well uh, appreciated in the community, and he wants to see this work. So we're doing everything we can to make sure that this community is viable for junior hockey.
2: All right. You know, it's funny. I just got a text from Yakushev, who's a listener in Lloyd Minster, and he's got a pretty sharp sense of humor. So uh, remember that when I read this. He goes, how long is Gord under contract? The Bobcats only have 10 wins this season. <laughs> so,
3: <laughs> you know, one of the hardest parts was leaving the Bobcats, trust me. And if it wasn't for, you know, the, the family side of this, um, I would have been content to finish my career in Lloyd. I would love that community. And I love what Brian Morrison and, and all the people around that uh, that organization have done to make that, you know, I think the best community-owned team in, in Western Canada. Uh, they've worked real hard, and they've got a real buy-in from the community. So there's definitely a lot of pride having worked with them, and um, they're going to turn it around. Trust me, they've got a young team, but uh, they'll be okay for next season.
2: Gord Thibodeau joining us, Whitecourt Wolverines head coach. You became the winningest coach in the Alberta Junior League on Friday with a win in Fort McMurray. You know, Gord, it's part of your story, and I know it's been publicized a lot over the last couple of weeks, um, about your your recurring battles, I guess, with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma uh, four times since 1989. It's how are you feeling, and how have you been able to you know, balance some of those battles with still, you know, being able to, to coach and, and be a leader to, to your young players?
3: Well, it's been, it's certainly been a lifelong companion. I mean, it's, uh, it's one of those things where, you know, your path sometimes isn't for you to choose. Um, you're, you have obstacles in your life and everyone does, whether they be personal, whether they be family related, everyone has obstacles they have to overcome. um, and I just saw it as another opponent. Um, that's the training that hockey gave me throughout my minor hockey and through my, my life was this is just another opponent that you have to be prepared for and uh, you've got to defeat. And um, It certainly wasn't fun the last time, I'll be honest. Uh, during the World Bank Cup, there were definitely some thoughts in my mind that maybe this, you know, maybe it's, it's, it's going to have a lasting impact. I don't know if I can continue my career based on the risk you put yourself into being in a cold rink for six months of the year or eight months of the year so uh, you have some questions but ultimately you keep coming back for one thing you enjoy what you're doing and the kids re-energize you and every time I felt low or down I thought of the fact that you know there's a group of 23 kids waiting at the rink uh, who are just beginning their path and they have a lot of obstacles that they're gonna to have to overcome, and um, if they can see you have success with this, hopefully it'll impact them when they face those adversities in the future.
2: Well, that's well said, and a great lead into my last question. and I know you still got uh you know potentially a decade or two left behind the bench so i I don't i i sometimes I hate to ask this because I don't mean to say it's like an end of career type question, but it, you know given where you're at now, what would you say to a young coach who's maybe you know a, a man or a woman in their 20s, they want to help out with the local peewee team or maybe have a chance to get behind the bench of a junior B or a junior A team? What would you say to that young coach starting out?
3: I'd say a couple things. I think, number one, you need to trust yourself. You know, a lot of good young coaches out there second-guess themselves. Trust yourself. Um, understand what you want to bring and remember most important people involved in hockey are the players at any level, whether it be NHL, whether it be at initiation. The object is to make those players have fun while they're developing their skill levels. And if you can do that, I don't care what the wins and losses say, you've been a very good coach. And that's what those kids will remember. And like I said, anyone um, that looks at the game of hockey has to remember that this is for the players, especially at the minor levels. And anything we can do to improve their experience is going to pay off down the road.
2: Gort, well said. Again, congratulations on the record. All the best here as you drive towards the playoffs. I'm glad we're still doing this after 17 years, and I hope we have many more years of interviews ahead. Really appreciate your time tonight.
3: Reed, thank you very much. And I'm hoping by now you know how to set up the camera properly. But, uh, you know, we'll see you next time. We'll see if, if that's changed. <laughs> Thanks, Cork. See you soon. Thanks, buddy. Take care.
2: <laughs> that's Court Tipito from the White Court Wolverines. Uh, check it in. <laughs> well, now some, we, we do film stuff in radio sometimes. We put videos on our website. They generally keep me away from the equipment, though, because I tend to uh, unintentionally break stuff. I'm not the. I'm not the most handy guy in the world. Shall we say? Uh, it is seven twenty-one. Great to have Gord on the show. An incredible achievement. It was Don Phelps, of course, whose record he, he broke. I should mention Don, who's uh, mostly known for his work with the uh, with the Calgary Canucks. He was a guy I got the interview a few times when he was in the AJHL uh, as well. So good for Gord. Uh, I'm glad to give the league a little love. Probably something I should do a little bit more, but definitely Gord is uh, deserving of it. There seven eight zero four nine six zero zero six three is the phone number. You can text six thirty six thirty. Kevin text in. He says, is Brian Boyle an Oiler yet? No, he isn't. I know that's one of the rumors out there, uh, Davidson for Boyle. That's a bit of an intriguing one for the uh, Edmonton Oilers as they move closer to the playoffs here. Going to take a quick timeout. We have some Super Bowl chat coming up. We'll talk about Brady, the comeback, what the Falcons did wrong. All ahead inside sports on Ched. Hey, this is Jordan Everly from your Edmonton Oilers. You're listening to Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on Oilers Radio 630, Chad. Thanks so much for tuning in tonight. As I mentioned, we expect the CFL schedule to be released tomorrow, so we'll have the Eskimo-related details for you. The Montreal Alouettes have released Rakeem Cato, quarterback, uh don't expect the uh, Eskimos to be interested there. The San Francisco 49ers have hired as expected Kyle Shanahan, the Atlanta Falcons offensive coordinator as their new head coach. My name is Reed Wilkins. Warren Mulvey on the other side of the window this evening working as our studio producer. Warren, old boy, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you, Reed? I'm doing great. Did you watch Le Bowl du Super yesterday? I did. I was watching it in between newscasts oh, yesterday. Oh, were you working on the old iNews? Yeah. Are you a big football fan? Uh you know, I used to be more of a fan than I am now. I really like the CFL, but uh, I still, I still care enough about the NFL to know what was happening. You got to watch the big games. Oh, of stunning, course. stunning comeback! It was, it was a really good game. I, I don't like the Patriots, but man, you got to hand it to them. <laughs> you know, here, and Dave only brought this up. He said, "Why are there so many Patriot haters out there?" <laughs> I mean, first of all. That's just the nature of sports. As I I said, there's nothing rational to to really having a favorite team, especially if your city doesn't have a team in that league, right? I mean, obviously, I'm sure 99% of the people listening right now would identify the Oilers as their favorite hockey team and the Eskimos as their favorite CFL team, right? Beyond that... Okay, probably most people cheer for the Blue Jays because they're Canadian, so there's still a bit of a region. I'm doing air quotes, regional thing there. Um, but when you're picking a favorite NFL team, I mean, a lot of people cheer for Buffalo because their games were always on TV here. Still are, but like a long time ago, that was the only team you'd get. Seattle's close by. Minnesota's relatively close by. But I think here's, here's part of the reason that the Patriots have become a team that divides fans. It's because they've been successful. So what happens? Some people jump on with them, and the other people say, I'm sick of this team winning, or they beat my favorite team, or owe them again. And let's face it, there are a lot of hardcore Patriots fans who probably could not tell you a thing about the team's history before 2001. And I think that annoys some people who have committed to a team for a long time and stayed with that team through thick and thin. Right? And I can remember the Houston Rockets had a lot of fans for about two or three years in the mid-1990s when they won some NBA championships. A couple, you know, in between the bowls. All of a sudden the Rockets were were popular. Right? So... I think that's what happens with a team. I mean, the Yankees are the same way. The Yankees have always been good. So a lot of people love the Yankees, and a lot of people hate the Yankees because they're just sick of them, and they want them to go away. Now, the Patriots, when Belichick and Brady retire, are probably going to go away pretty quickly. <laughs> but that does, that does, and hey, I'm not diminishing what they accomplished, obviously. I'm just saying that's usually how it works in pro sports. At some point, the San Antonio Spurs are, are going to go away. Right, when Popovich is gone, the the continuity is uh, is difficult. We're going to bring in a massive Tom Brady and Patriots fan, and I'm going to ask him that exact question about when his so called diehard commitment to this team began. A guy I actually used to work with in Lloyd Minster. He's now a digital journalist with our friends at Global, and Blake Dermott, our Eskimos analyst who uh, previewed the Super Bowl for us last week. He'll now break it down. That's when we get back inside sports on Ched.
1: Hi, this is Ryan Easy-Hopkins from your Edmonton Oilers. You're listening to Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on Oilers Radio 630 Chad.
0: James White will set behind Brady. We'll move under center, trips to the right, at to tight end left. Second and goal to go from the two.
2: Patriots Radio Network call Bob Sochi on the play by play. Scott Zolak with the excited analysis as the Patriots did complete the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history, down 28 3, winning 34 28 in overtime to win the Super Bowl for, like, I don't know, the 20th time or something. I guess it was the fifth. Uh, Inside Sports on 630 Chad. My name is Reed Wilkins. Uh, A game that is going to be discussed for a long time for I think a lot of different reasons how it happened what it means for Brady and Belichick and, and I also think uh, overtime quite frankly is something else that is going to come up and to talk about some of those topics I'm pleased to welcome to the show two guys first of all an old co-worker of mine at New Cap Television in Lloyd Minster now with Global here in Edmonton and a huge Patriots fan it's Slav Kornick Slav, how are you doing? Good Reed, how are you? Doing great. It's an honor to have you on the show. Also, our Eskimos analyst who helped us preview the Super Bowl last week. Now he'll help us pick it apart. It's Blake Dermott. Well, hello, Blake. How you doing, Reid? I just want to say the Patriots uh, threw short passes to receivers who were running, not stationary. <laughs> that was the key, right, buddy? <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's exactly right, yeah.
2: <laughs> Let, we'll start here with Slav, because you've made no secret in your life and on social media that you have an almost dangerous passion for the New England Patriots. <laughs> what was your experience like as a fan watching that game yesterday? I mean, Dave Campbell, who I work with in Cheers for New England, I, th- I think had lost hope. Where were you at?
0: Uh, I was definitely at that point, too, when they were down 28-3. It, uh, it was the wildest game I've ever watched in any sport. I mean, I think it was the worst experience of my life watching a sport in the first half. And then it went to the greatest experience of my life. I'd have to say it was probably... One of the two best games I've ever watched in any sport. The second one being uh, 98 when uh, Jordan beat the Bulls in game six. So it was was incredible.
2: Blake, you were obviously watching the game with the detached pretension of a football analyst. (laughs) 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 I I was saying to Morley and Dave today, at no point was it a competitive game because Atlanta dominated for 30 minutes and then (laughs) New England dominated for 30.
1: Well, I, you know, I when when I look back at the game and uh, and really critically analyze the thing, I, in spite of the score uh, with Atlanta being up twenty eight to three at that point or twenty one to three at the half, anyways, it was you know two plays and uh, the pick six and then uh, you know later on the missed convert and those are eight points that New England did not get and you take those away. New England wins the game not going into overtime. And, uh, I mean, when you look at how many yards Brady threw for and you look at how many plays that they ran in the first half, they had run considerably more plays than than uh, uh, the Falcons had run. I mean, there, at no point did I ever think that, that uh, uh, New England wasn't moving the ball. You know, it was just one of those things where uh, they just kept making that mistake that was killing them. And, uh you know, I, I had a, a glimmer of hope when they scored that touchdown to make it uh, 28-9. And then when they missed the convert, I was like, oh, well, this just isn't their day. You know, and, but I, it was really weird. I, like a lot of people, at 21-3, I wasn't really, really panicked. Um, but I, uh, then when they came out and scored that next touchdown, when the Falcons scored the next touchdown, I thought, wow, this is just, it's, it's over now. And how, how close are they going to make it? Uh, how, how good is this going to, uh, are they going to try to uh, massage this to, to make it so it isn't a, a complete blowout? But, boy, that, uh, that organization, that Patriots organization just showed you, uh, you know, what kind of depth they have, what kind of resolve they have. And, of course, you know, Tom Brady being the best quarterback in, in the history of the NFL and Bill Belichick, without question, has got to be the best uh, head coach. So. You know, it's interesting. They just showed they just showed what what they're made
2: of. It's interesting for for Eskimos fans, obviously, because uh, the Eskimos were on the wrong end of a twenty five point comeback to Hamilton. Granted, in in the regular season, but I, I can't remember twice in about a seven month span as a, as a fan witnessing two comebacks to to that extent. Blake, I'll stick with you here before I go back to Slav. A lot has been made of Atlanta's poor clock management and the lack of running plays late in the game. I mean, when Julio Jones made that great catch, to, you look at that and said, they that should have iced it. They're down there, run the couple plays, make New England take their timeouts, kick a, you know, 85% probability field goal. Do, do you look at that as, as they mismanage the game a little bit, or how do you see it?
1: Well, uh, just like uh, when the Patriots beat Seattle in that glorious Super Bowl win two years ago, Um, Seattle chose not to run the ball when they were in a situation where they should have. And, uh, um, you know, in in field goal range or almost field goal range, you run the ball twice, then kick the field goal, that would have iced the game for Atlanta. But they chose to to throw, get sacked, throw, get penalty, and uh, now they're out of field goal range. It it just, you know, in hindsight, um, yeah, that was that was a, the turning point in the game for for the Falcons, where they they mismanaged that. They didn't, you know, when they ran the ball, like they they ran all over uh, New England, big runs, first second play of the game, you know, 40 yarder. Yeah, they just they ran the ball well against uh, the Patriots, but. In the second half, when you got a, a twenty uh, at that point of twenty-eight to three lead, and you can kill the clock by running the ball, they ran the ball five times in the second half.
2: Yeah, uh, you know
1: that that just is mind-boggling that they they had a team they could have put them away and they they didn't. And uh, you know the thing that's real difficult, you know, of course, what's been said about Coach Quinn, he, he's uh, you know was the defensive coordinator with with uh, with Seattle, and now uh, they're losing twice to. To uh, Brady in in the last place of the game, you know, essentially, that's got to be tough for that for him.
2: Slav, as a fan, as a, as, a, as a hardcore Patriots fan, were you watching it thinking, why does Atlanta keep giving us a chance? Like, was there anything mind boggling to you?
0: Yeah, you know what? In the third quarter, I started thinking that when after the Patriots, I think after they scored their first touchdown, or maybe after they kicked their field goal, I remember there was a few um, possessions where in Atlanta was snapping the ball with like 15 seconds to go on their. Um, on the play clock and I was thinking like, man, if I, at this point I think Atlanta should be starting to run the clock a little bit down. I know it was still plenty of time left, but considering the lead they had, I started you know, thinking that, why aren't they running the clock a little bit more, just running it down to the last couple of seconds before they snap the ball. Um, so I started thinking that in about in the third quarter and then, yeah, as Blake said, later in the game, especially after Jones made that incredible catch and they got down to the 22, I honestly thought, well, you know, they're gonna kick a short field goal here and the game's gonna be over. And uh, I figured they're just going to run the ball and try to run the clock down and uh, and kick a short field goal. But when they threw the ball, I was uh, you know definitely second guessing them. But, uh, <laughs> but but as a Patriots fan, I was uh, I was happy they were doing it because it was stopping the clock. And then obviously after um, after Ryan got uh, sacked there, and then they picked up the uh, the penalty, it opened up the door again for the Patriots. But. Uh, you know, certainly, I thought there was opportunities for the Falcons to uh, to ice that game a few times in the fourth quarter and uh, just manage the clock a little bit better. But again, as a Patriots fan, I wasn't complaining that they were they are throwing the ball and stopping the clock. So
2: that's Slav Kornick from Global Edmonton. Our Eskimos analyst Blake Dermott, also on the line. Guys, o- overtime in the NFL has has always been discussed, and and it's interesting what we've seen here because the Grey Cup went to overtime. And nobody really complained about the format. It goes to what, you know, the shootout, if you want to call it that. Each team gets a possession on the 35. In the playoffs, you you play until somebody's ahead. After an equal number of possessions, obviously, there can be a tie in CFL regular season. The NFL has tweaked their overtime. But it can still end as it did last night with one team not getting the ball. Now, this I, I'm not turning this into, oh, that's the only reason the Patriots won, because clearly they did everything that needed to win. But, and Morley Scott said this earlier, he goes, the, the NFL championship ended with the MVP of the league not getting a chance in overtime. The Grey Cup ended with the MVP of the league, Bo Levi Mitchell, throwing three straight incompletions, or I think it was a short completion and two incompletions. You know what I mean? So, Slav, I'll start with you, uh, and, I, I, and I and I know you're you're fair enough to take your Patriots hat off here. NFL overtime, the shootout used in the CFL, and the NCAA—is it time? Would you like to see the NFL go down that route, or how do you look at it?
0: I actually. Going into that overtime I was saying that I think it would be better if they did something like had like a ten minute overtime where just play a sec or a fifth quarter, uh, maybe shorten it up a little bit so you don't go the full fifteen minutes. But I'd like to see them play it by time instead of you know, definitely what they're doing right now. I don't like the idea of one of the teams not even getting a chance to touch the ball. I I'm more in favor of them just playing a ten minute quarter or, you know, eight minute quarter, whatever whatever number they choose. And just playing it out that way, especially especially in the Super Bowl, I think in the, if they want to do it the way they do it right now in the regular season, that's one thing I can kind of understand why they want to do that. Football is obviously a very physical game, and in the regular season, uh, you know if they go to a fifth, sixth, seventh overtime, I don't know if you want to do that. But I think in the playoffs, especially in the Super Bowl, play a fifth quarter, and you know if they're tied, go to another quarter, maybe a five minute quarter, that sort of thing. That, that's that's my thought.
2: Blake, what about you?
1: Well, my only concern is is the uh, going with a, uh, and I, I I agree with uh, Slavov in that in that an extra quarter like a um, like an, an actual game uh, would be my preference. Problem in the NFL game is that I mean I was at the Super Bowl in nineteen ninety when uh, uh, Jeff Hostetler took the ball for thirteen minutes of a quarter, right, and drove it down the field uh, and they called it the drive and it was you know one of the the, the best things that that ever uh, happened in the NFL and. My God, watching the thing, I thought it was, I was—I would have swallowed a gun if I had one. It was—it was terrible to watch. But, but one team just—you know—you you have the ability to be able to, to kill. So, if you want the ten-minute quarter, there's a possibility that one team gets the ball and kills the whole quarter anyway. So, I—I um, I don't mind the shootout style. Um, that would be my second preference, to go to a shootout. But what I don't like about the shootout is, especially in the CFL when they start at the 35-yard line, even if you don't move the ball an inch, you're still kicking a 42-yard field goal. So my suggestion would be to move it back 10 yards so that now it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a very much a not-makeable field goal. And... Uh, so if, and, and in the NFL, the, the college game is already based on the shootout. So it's not like it would be something that they're introducing that fans aren't familiar with. So I would go to a shootout, but I would move it back 10 yards, make it a little bit more difficult to get to the end zone, at least get some points.
2: Yeah, I wouldn't mind that. Starts with the field goals, um, a less higher percentage. And, and so you still have to drive. And I don't mind that they take punting and field position out. I mean, it's, yeah. it's overtime. You can change the rules a little bit to get a resolution. Okay, you know, Sports fans are obsessed with lists, guys. Who's the greatest this, the greatest that? I mean, that Brady already had that title for a lot of people. Uh, but it was funny, on Twitter yesterday I saw somebody say, well, Bart Starr technically won more championships, they just weren't Super Bowls, so that's how far back we could go. Uh, I mean, I mean, I don't know, I, I used to bug Slav when we worked together, Slav, because you were naming Brady the greatest quarterback of all time after his first <laughs> Super Bowl, so I can only imagine how you feel now. Um, I mean, look, I've been, for my era, I'm like, Joe Montana was pretty darn good and fit well into a system the way, the way Brady does. D- do we have to put Brady on Number one, is it, is it even worth debating at this point? The Blake, I'll start with you.
1: Well, I, it was an interesting thing watching the pregame last night, and they were comparing some of these quarterbacks. They were comparing the Green Bay Packers. Uh, you know that players played on teams for a lot longer in the pre um, uh,
2: the free agency, the, yeah,
1: free agency era, right? So, so they had like thirteen Hall of Famers on that Green Bay Packers, you know, group that won the number. Tom Brady has played with something like they said seventy different offensive linemen, the number of receivers that he 's played with, how many offensive coordinators he 's played with like and, and and to be able to continue to win to be able to, be, to show up with with essentially new receivers all the time, or you know they 'll pull somebody in from some team and he 's there for two years and they get rid of him i, I don 't even think there 's a comparison when you compare the the, the, the type of uh, weapons that he had in his arsenal as opposed to somebody that had a, a group of people that played together for an awful long time, and they got old together. And they, you know, I mean, you can you look at the Edmonton Eskimos from their five in a row. How many of those guys stayed together in that whole group? It's, it's just, and, and how many of them are Hall of Famers now? Um, I don't think Tom Brady's had that luxury, but Tom Brady has been uh, the one constant amongst that, of course, with Belichick, that he is, makes people great around him. And, uh, Um, You know, it's as an offensive lineman. You know, they brought in, they upgraded their offensive line this this year, and that solder, the left tackle, was eaten up by Dwight Freeney. And uh, you know, and and Brady's got to throw the ball away quickly on slants and the guys in the 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 quick drags across the middle because he was getting hammered. And uh, you know what? He he gave up sixteen sacks. They gave up sixteen sacks all season, but they gave up three, four in that one game. He got he got beat up, yet he still stood in there at thirty nine years old and, and directed the team when he needed to. I don't I don't even think that there's even a question and there shouldn't be. Anybody who, who can bring up somebody else or even can try to rationalize that he is not the best quarterback that's ever played, certainly in this era, I I, I, I have no time for that argument because there's just no evidence for it.
2: Well and I slav look, Slav, I was bugging you and I know obviously you're biased, but but maybe the key there too is the combination, right? For whatever reason, Brady and Belichick with them being the leaders, one of the coaching staff and one of the players, it, it just worked. It was magic for those two guys and will be for however long they de- they decide to keep going.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you, you know, you hear people say that, well, Brady wouldn't be what he is without Belichick and vice versa, but I think the two the two of them together, if they didn't have each other, they in all likelihood wouldn't be quite as good and wouldn't have accomplished exactly what they have up to this point, but uh, I think Blake made, makes a lot of my point, I mean, the fact that Brady's been able to do it for this long with so many players coming in and out during the free agency salary cap era is incredible. I mean, it's it's remarkable what they've been able to do considering all those uh, circumstances and especially when you consider that he really hasn't had a great... He had Randy Moss. Randy Moss would, in my opinion, be the only great wide receiver that he's had in the time he's... Uh, been with the Patriots and then Gronkowski is a, obviously a great <clears throat> tight end and he was able to win a Super Bowl without Gronkowski this year and particularly the last two, two Super Bowls, what he was able to do um, in those two games has solidified his place as the greatest quarterback in NFL history in my opinion. I mean, let's not forget that two years ago, uh, not quite the same comeback, but they were down by 10 points I believe in the fourth quarter against Seattle and uh, he threw for on like 350 yards and had four touchdowns in that game, and I mean these two past Super Bowl victories by uh, Brady has certainly uh, solidified him as the greatest quarterback of all time. And I think John Mon- uh, Joe Montana is right up there as well. And you know, I hear people even uh, today saying, "Well, Joe Montana never lost in the Super Bowl," but I think if I had a career, I'd rather get to the Super Bowl. Even if Brady lost yesterday, I would still argue that he's the greatest quarterback of all time. Because to me, if you win four out of seven. And another player wins four out of four. To me, it's the guy who won four out of seven just had three better seasons than the other guy. I'd rather, I still rather get to the Super Bowl uh, seven times and lose three of them than go four for four personally.
1: So. Well, you know, I'm just going to jump in. One of those losses, keep in mind, was that they won, they won 17 games in a row. And then lost to a circus right. catch.
2: That's uh-huh. right. So,
1: <laughs> so when when I how how does how did and did he play poorly in that game? Absolutely not. He was phenomenal in that game. And the, one of the things you, you you didn't mention though is that never having had a significant long term wide receiver that Brady's had, but boy, he's had some good slot backs. You know, he had mm-hmm. Welker and Amendola and uh, Edelman. And you know, when you look at that game yesterday, when you you talk about the things that that game had. Uh, it had um, just fantastic play, running game by, by the Falcons early, and Julio Jones. You know, he outstanding, best receiver in the league. Everybody says that over and over again, and he showed it on those catches that he made, those uh, t- uh, you know, tight roping the sidelines, and then that catch by Edelman, that uh, you know that they had to look at, and and how the referee saw that that was a catch. You know, it was fantastic, and then you look at the play. Of of uh, Freeney on the defensive end, you know that, and and uh, and Garrett inside. Like there was some just some great plays made on both sides of the ball, and uh, and then the halftime show was unbelievable. We're not even talking about that. <laughs> I, thought, I thought. Well, this is a sports show, Blake. I don't <laughs> want to hear about Gaga. your crush on Lady Gaga. <laughs> <laughs>
2: It was great. It was pretty good. Guys, uh, we're a little heavy here. Thanks so much for coming on, Blake. We're going to be doing this several times. Slav, when it comes to lists, you are my favorite Nate basketball alum of all time. Okay, buddy? Nice. appreciate it, Reed. All, all right. right Reed. That's Blake Durbin and Slav Kordick checking in. A little Super Bowl talk. we got to take a break. Inside Sports on Jed.
0: This is Ken Talbot from your Edmonton Oilers, and you're listening to Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on Oilers Radio 630 Chet.
2: Three games in the NHL tonight. They are all finished. The Islanders outscore the Leafs 6-5 in overtime. The Devils Edge, the Sabres 2-1. Carter Hutton gets a shutout for the Blues in their 2-0 win in Philadelphia. Tom Brady, little commercial that played immediately after the Super Bowl for Shield Healthcare. Tom. Hi.
0: Welcome to Shields MRI. Would you please remove all jewelry and place it in the locker?
2: Oh yeah, sure, no problem.
0: Tom Brady trusts Shields MRI. You can too. That all?
2: <laughs>
1: Actually, no. I forgot this one.
2: It's kind of new. We're
0: gonna need to get you for your locker.
2: Roger that. So he filmed that before the game with a fifth Super Bowl ring, putting it in the locker before he gets his go gets his MRI and then they play it after the game once he won. I wonder if that ever would have surfaced if they hadn't won the game, but they did. It was incredible. All right, thanks to Warren Mulvey, our studio producer this evening. Dave Campbell is the producer of Inside Sports. Thanks to our guests, Slav Kornick, Blake Dermott, Gord Thibodeau, Kelly Rudy, and Dave Lomley. If you missed anything, sign up for the Inside Sports podcast on 630 or ched.com. My name is Reed Wilkins. Charles Adler tonight is up next. Thank you for listening.